Thank you, Pastor Joel. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all today. Uh, I love that last song we sang. I have never, how many of you have never heard that song? I had never heard it either, and uh, there's something extremely humbling about the old hymns of our faith, especially those that span uh, centuries and that span continents. And to think of the reality that people have been singing that song for hundreds of years, many of whom are now in eternity singing that same song of praise and worship to our great God. So thank you for inviting me to be here with you this morning. It is an honor to be with South Canyon. And uh, as Joel said, my name is Stephan Carson. I'm the pastor of Connection Church in Belfouche. We planted uh, our church there around nine years ago, and we have truly loved our time in Belfouche. Uh, we love our church. We love our community. We love the people that are there. In fact, uh, we've got a family from our church that surprised me this morning and showed up. I'm trying to look her. They're on the back. They sit in the back row in our church too, so they're on the back row back there. And uh, uh, they were a, a sermon illustration this morning. I've got to pull that out last minute. Uh, no, not really. Uh, but it is good to be with you guys. We love what God is doing in Belfouche. We love what God is doing here in the Black Hills through many wonderful sister churches, including this one. Uh, and again, you really don't know me, but I, I feel like I know you. Uh, quite a bit because uh, Josh Brown is a really good friend of mine. I've known Josh for three or four years now, and, uh, and, and he has become a great friend, a great partner in ministry. Uh, and through Josh, I have heard a lot of wonderful things about South Canyon. Uh, I also have had the privilege of knowing Pastor Brent. I didn't know him all that well, but really enjoyed the time I was able to spend with him. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Pastor Joel and Pastor Tanner. Uh, I've gotten to know them over the last couple of years, and I think very, very highly of both of them. I'm thankful for their faithfulness and their ministry here. Uh, I can tell you that being in pastoral ministry during calm times in a church is difficult, uh, and when you have transition like you guys have had the last year or so, it's even more difficult. And so thankful for these two men and their ministry here and the, uh, the way that they have face, faithfully uh, ministered in, in this interim period. Um, uh, we're about to move into another season of ministry, I hear, here at South Canyon. And I'm uh, very, very grateful for that. I hear that your new pastor will arrive soon. In fact, I wrote Josh Brown and said, now what is the new pastor's name that's going to be coming in? And, uh, and he gave me the name of the pastor, James Proctor. But I, this morning, went over to Tanner and said, let me just make sure that actually is his name because Josh has been known to kind of mess with me and have me come up. You know, I'd come up here and say, just, you know, Bob Smith is going to be your pastor. You'd be like, what are you talking about? So I had to, I had to clarify that his name actually is James Proctor. Uh, but I am so excited for you. I'm excited about this new season of ministry that you're about to move into as a church body. Uh, and, and what I want to do right now is for the next couple of minutes, let's just bow our heads and pray for him and his family and this new time at South Canyon. Father, right now, I thank you so much for this great body of faith. I thank you for their gospel witness here in Rapid City and throughout the Black Hills and, and through their missions efforts all around the world. And God, I do pray right now for Pastor James as he'll be arriving, he and his family here in a few weeks. God, we pray for uh, safety as they travel. We pray for provision on the way. And uh, God, we do just pray that you would do great and incredible things through this body of faith as he and his family arrive. I pray that you would give him a very clear vision for what needs to happen here. And God, I pray that you would use him in incredible ways as the, as the gospel continues to, to, to expand throughout this area. And so, God, we pray blessings right now. We pray that this church would uh, come under his leadership and, would, uh, and would, would pull the rope in the same direction together for your glory. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, I'd invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be in verses 11 and 12 this morning. Uh, but I want to start out by reading in verse 9. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9. 
It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, the first thing I want you to notice here is there's a bit of a transition between verses 10 and 11. Peter has just been encouraging those that he was writing with some very, very exciting truths about who they are in Christ. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He shared with them those exciting truths about who they are in Christ, and then he begins to transition into how those truths should affect them. Because of who they are in Christ, this is how they should now act and interact in this world. So he transitions in verse 11 by using the word beloved. Beloved, I urge you. The, the word for beloved there is the Greek word agapetos. And I believe it has a double meaning in this context here. He is calling them beloved in the sense that they were immeasurably loved by their great God. But Peter was also writing of his love for them. Now, I wanted to mention that because there was a time when the apostle Peter was called out for his prejudice toward Gentile peoples. And in this letter, Peter is primarily addressing Gentile believers, despite him being a Jewish man. But even after coming to know Christ, and even after, after coming into that saving relationship with God, even after seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ, even after knowing that Gentiles were able to receive the salvation of God, it took Peter a while to fully embrace the implications of that in his own life and in his ministry. I don't have time. I wish I had time to expand on this and to kind of share the story of how God worked in his life in this area. But if you get a chance later today, I would encourage you to go read Acts chapter 10 and read Galatians 2, 11 through 14 that kind of shares that experience. Now, I wanted to mention that because Peter calling these brothers and sisters beloved, it shows an incredible interchange in his heart that the message of Christ had brought it was certainly a progression in his life, but God had removed his prejudice and he had replaced it with love and brotherhood toward his Gentile family of faith. Now, why were these people that he's writing here, why were they beloved brothers and sisters? Well, it goes back to the previous couple of verses. Though Gentiles, they had trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They had been given the mercy of God, and they were now part of the family of God. And as a result of that, and as a result of the change that God had placed in Peter's heart, he referred to them here as beloved. These were, these were people that he cared deeply about, and he wanted what was best for them. He wanted them to be in a close relationship with God. He wanted what was best for them. And so he then begins to write about things that they should be about as followers of Christ in the following verses. So look at verse 11 again. And, and again, he referred to them as beloved, and this is then what he exhorted them to do. Look at verse 11 here. He writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. In your bulletin, there is an outline there if you want to follow along, but truth number one for the Christian is this. 
If indeed you know Christ as Lord, truth number one is this, I am a sojourner and exile in this world. I am a sojourner and exile in this world. The word for sojourner here is the, is the Greek word as uh, par oikos, which literally means alongside the house. So this word is a picture of one who lives in a temporary structure that is set up beside a permanent structure. It's someone who really didn't belong in a certain land or a certain household of people. It's someone who is temporary. It'd be like, it'd be like someone here going and, and setting up a, a tent on someone else's land next to their house. It's not really your land, but you are temporarily living there. You are sojourning there. And then he referred to them as exiles here. And this is the idea of a stranger or a pilgrim in a foreign land. Now, if you go back and read chapter 1, Peter was writing uh, people who, in many cases, were, were, were literally exiled in a foreign land. Many of them had been scattered abroad due to their identification with Jesus Christ. They were scattered abroad because of persecution. And so here he is using this language of sojourner and exile because it was relatable to those that would have read this letter. He was using the language of what they were literally experiencing to highlight a much greater spiritual truth for the Christian. These two words, sojourner and exile, are important words for all Christians of all time and all places because they remind us of a few very, very critical things. As sojourners and exiles in this world, we are reminded, first of all, that this world is not our home. This world is, and, and I don't know about you, but if you, if you flip on the news, if you look around at our world and you see all of the, the craziness that is happening, more so than ever in my life, I am so glad that this world is not my home. We are part of a greater kingdom. We are part of an unshakable, incorruptible, eternally perfect kingdom. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, this world is not our home. Number two, as sojourners and exiles in this world, we are reminded that comfort is not our goal. Comfort is not our goal. Which, listen, people are spending billions and billions of dollars every year to try to get us to buy into the lie that our comfort and our pleasure is primary in life. But as Christians, we are reminded that our comfort is not the goal. And, and while comfort is not the goal of the sojourner and the exile, we also know that we live alongside those who are, in fact, very, very comfortable in this world. For those who don't know Christ, this world is their home. And they're going to act like it is their home. Don't be shocked to see the world live like the world. Don't be shocked to see the world adopt the worldview of this culture. It is their home. But for the sojourner in exile, it is not. Number three, as sojourners and exiles in this world, we are reminded that God's mission is our mandate. God's mission is our mandate. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a bit. But while we as Christ followers are not to be at home in this world, God has placed us here at this time in this place for very specific reasons. God has placed South Canyon Church right here in Rapid City to be on mission for him in this community and abroad. Therefore, since God's mission is our mandate, it is critical that we discern what is at stake. We must discern what is at stake. Peter writes here in verse 11 that Christians are to, he says, abstain from the passions or the strong desires of our flesh. 
Now, I think when we read a phrase like that in verse 11, abstain from the passions of our flesh, our minds probably naturally gravitate towards sexual immorality, and that is absolutely part of what he is writing of here. But this phrase, abstain from fleshly lust, it encompasses all desires that are contrary to the nature of God and the will of God for his people. For example, in Galatians 5, Paul outlines some of the fruits of the flesh. And he writes that the works of the flesh are evident. And he says it's things like sexual immorality, idolatry, jealousy, fits of anger, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and things like that. Now, I believe we, we, we all have different areas of our lives that we might struggle with more, a certain, struggle more in this area than that area and so forth. Uh, maybe, maybe it is sexually with lust or sinful actions. Maybe it is with rivalries and always having that tendency to compare ourselves to others and, and becoming jealous or hateful toward those that we don't feel like we measure up to. Maybe it is dissensions and, and just always longing for controversy and always gossiping toward others. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it is anger. Whatever it is that you tend to struggle with, we're all fully aware of how difficult those things can be to overcome. In fact, Peter uses a very interesting phrase to describe how strong these fleshly passions can be. He writes here in verse 11 that they wage war against our souls. Now that is not flowery, weak language that he employs there. The word Peter used for war is a word that literally means to carry on a strategic military campaign. For the Christian, this is a stern reminder that our old man and our new man are in constant conflict. You see, my greatest struggle in life is not, we often see it like my greatest struggle in life is all those knuckleheads out there. If all those people out there weren't the way they were, my life would be a lot better. But my greatest struggle is not with those out there. My greatest struggle is not with the circumstances I am facing out there. My greatest struggle, personally, my greatest struggle is standing at this pulpit right in front of you this morning. I am my own worst enemy in many ways. And so someone might say, well, I struggle with that person, though, or I struggle with that political ideology or people of this race or this culture or whatever. But our greatest struggle is in here because all of those struggles out there originate in here. Now, someone might say, well, I just uh, kind of live under the mantra of I just do what feels right in life. I just let my feelings be my guide. I trust my gut, or maybe to use you know, common vernacular today, I trust my heart. I follow my heart. You hear that a lot. You know, Hollywood is, is full of that. Just follow your heart. Your heart will never lead you astray, which is one of the most unbiblical pieces of advice you can give a person. Because Jeremiah says our heart is desperately sick. It is wicked, and it will lead us astray. And that little voice that says, do what feels right, to follow your heart, that voice is not our friend. It is part of what Peter is writing of here. It is that battle that is raging within us. It is our enemy. I mean, I've, I've heard of husbands using this very line of reasoning who have abandoned their wife and children because they just felt like their heart was leading them to this new woman. This is, the ra- this is, this is a raging war. In that case, that is a raging war that is going on in the heart of that man. And unfortunately, when they give into that, they lose the battle. And rather than taking note of that little voice being their enemy, they, in that case, embraced it as their friend. Just like an enemy spy who infiltrates in order to destroy, so also are the unchecked passions of our flesh. Families have been ruined by an unbridled passion of a dad or a husband or a mom or a wife who've made terrible decisions while following the lead of their flesh. Churches 
have been split over this. Christ has often been ridiculed when a Christian falls morally because their guard is down in this war that we are engaged in. A lot is at stake. A lot is at stake. The purity of our soul is at stake. But in the case of the Christian, the sojourner in the exile, there is even more at stake than even our own souls. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak, now notice, not if, but when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So truth number two for the Christian is this. I am a representative of Christ to this world. I am a representative of Christ to this world. You see, it's not just our own souls that are at stake, but we also represent Christ to this world. We are, as Paul wrote, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us to the lost world to be reconciled to himself. And so Peter writes here, keep your, it is critical that we keep our conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Keep ongoing, continually keep your conduct among the world honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Which that, that, that little verse right there really reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. And then Jesus said this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Back in 2007 and 2008, we were, uh, my wife and I, we were missionaries in Uganda, in East Africa. We did a two-year ISC term with the International Mission Board, and we lived in the capital city of Kampala. Just out of curiosity, has anyone here ever been to Uganda? Anyone? Right over here? Awesome. Isn't it a great place? It's one of the best places I've ever been to on earth, some of the most wonderful people. And God is doing great things in East Africa as well. There's a, there's a movement of God's Spirit in those peoples over there, and it is really, really cool to, to be able to see and be a part of. But we lived there in 2007, 2008. We lived in the capital city of Kampala, and Kampala has a lot of hills surrounding the city. It's just a really beautiful place. Uh, and as we, when we lived there, the electricity was not very reliable at all. Uh, the power would randomly come on and off throughout the day. Uh, I don't know that we ever made it through a full 24-hour period without the power going off for a little bit of time. And, uh, and, and, and sometimes at night, we would just happen to be maybe sitting outside and just kind of looking at the hills in the distance. And, and you would see one hill that was just really dark. And clearly the power was off in that particular part of town. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're looking at it and all of a sudden the power comes back on and boom, there's just, it's just, it's the whole thing is lit up. It is, it is obvious that power has been restored to that part of town. The whole hillside would be ablaze. It would be illuminated. Light in the darkness is evident, isn't it? And, and I just want to encourage you, South Canyon Baptist Church, to be a light like that in this community. Make it obvious to this community who your Lord is. Make it obvious whom it is that you serve. Will there be resistance from the enemy if you really sell out and live for Christ in this community? I guarantee you there will be. I mean, it's told right here in this passage. Look at what he says again. He says, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers. What do you do? When they slander you, he says, prove them wrong by having done what is right. Evildoers was a 
fairly common, commonly used term for Christians during this day. Christians at this time were wrongly viewed and slandered as troublemakers. They were often labeled as anti-government because they would not bow their knee to Caesar. They refused to bow their knee and say, Caesar is Lord, because they said there is only one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And so they were viewed as anti-government. They were viewed, Christians at this time, as being very strange and following an odd and seemingly new deity. And this made non-believers extremely angry. In fact, some of them even believed that when bad things happened in their society, it was a result of the gods being angry at the Christians for embracing this new false god called Jesus. There were all types of rumors that had circulated about Christians, even extreme rumors that Christians were cannibals, that they would kill one another and eat one another. I mean, there were all kinds of crazy things that were said. But Peter said here in this verse, he said, they may say those things about you. They may label you as evildoers, but if you live in a distinct way that honors God, God will honor that. God will give you favor with some of them. And the lost world will take note of your good conduct and of your godliness. And in some cases, those good works will cause people to start pursuing God when they hear the gospel on the day of visitation, as it says here. The day the gospel message is shared. Now, I just want to stop right here in the text and say this. When you try and put all this together, this can seem like a daunting challenge. I mean, think about this. Christians live in this world. We're not of this world, but we live in this world. We live alongside those who are of this world and who are completely comfortable in this world. We still have sinful passions that are waging war in our souls. And sometimes we are slandered by the world on top of all of that. Now, knowing all of that, can anyone really wage a good war back? I mean, it seems like the deck is stacked against us, doesn't it? It seems like we are outflanked in this spiritual war that Peter writes of here. It looks like our enemy and our flesh have a much more strategic position to win this battle in our lives. And you may have felt that way before. You probably have. I know I have. Where, where in, in a struggle with sin, we probably at times have gotten so discouraged that we just thought, this is too hard. I can't stop doing this or I can't start doing what it is that I need to be doing. But, but here's what we've got to remember in this. This exhortation to abstain from fleshly lusts and to keep our conduct honorable in this world, this is not a command that is lacking in power. This is not a pull yourself up by the spiritual bootstraps kind of command. We've got to not only recognize what is, and discern what is at stake in this battle, but we must also recognize what is available to us. Recognize what is available to us. Now, this is not explicitly stated in these verses, but it is all throughout this letter and even all throughout the New Testament. Chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 remind us of how important it is that we stay close to Christ in order to find strength in this battle that we are engaged in. So here's just a really good principle that we see at work from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Scriptures. God's power always accompanies God's call. God's power always accompanies God's call. And God, through the inspiration of his scriptures, is calling us in this text to war. He is calling us into a battle to fight and to wage war against the very passions that are waging war against our souls. And with his call also comes his presence and also comes his power to do what it is that he has called us to do. However, this is not a, a let go and let God kind of call that many think it is. 
This does not mean that we simply acknowledge this truth and say, well, good, it's good to know that there's a battle going on, and then we turn around and live our lives completely unprepared, completely undisciplined for this battle. No, just like, just like in an actual war, we've got to be prepared. Consider a general that is about to lead his soldiers into war. He does not get to the battlefield and then start preparation for the war. Long before the war started, he got a plan in place. He is strategic in his plan. He gathered facts. He takes things into consideration. And then he crafted his plan, his strategic battle plan. I was reading some quotes from some famous generals that I think help us understand the seriousness of the battle that, 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 and, and our need for an appropriate strategy in this spiritual battle we are engaged in. Here's some of the, the quotes I like. This is General Omar Bradley. He said, in war there is no prize for runner-up. Again, a lot is at stake. General Douglas MacArthur said this. He said, it is fatal to enter any war without the will to win it. Do, and so the question from that is, do we take this spiritual battle seriously? Are we in it to win it? General George Patton, a leader is a man. And, and by the way, what, the, what I'm about to read you is the definition of wisdom. I don't know if he knew that or not, but this is wisdom. Listen to what he said. General George Patton, a leader is a man who can adapt principles to his circumstances. Again, that is wisdom. Wisdom is not just knowledge and facts. Wisdom is the proper application of those knowledge and facts. To know how to apply them into a situation is to be wise. And so like George Patton said, related to, to actual battle, are we wise in this battle? This is from an ancient Chinese commander. He said, the general who wins the battle is the one who makes calculations in his temple long before the battle is fought. The general who loses makes but few calculations. Are we ready? Are we ready? Are we calculating in our fight against our fleshly desires that are waging war against our souls? Because here's the thing. A spiritual war is happening in our lives one way or another. Are we prepared for the attack? You know, I'm afraid many times as Christians, especially in the Western world, the prosperous Western world, we who are comfortable, we who think that we have everything we need, I'm afraid that we're not often very calculating in our fight against fleshly desires. We forget that there really is an unrelenting war happening within us. Again, Peter didn't write here, abstain from fleshly passions that sometimes trip us up or that sometimes might cause us a little bother. No, he said they wage war against us. And we must have a plan to fight back against our flesh that is seeking to wage a destructive war against our souls and the souls of others. And we need wisdom to develop that plan. God's power is there in abundance. God's presence is there. And we need God's wisdom. James chapter 1, verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith. God's power is there, God's presence is there, and God's wisdom is available. So here are some important questions to consider, and I really do encourage you with this. this is, what I'm about to say is very practical in nature, but if you're here this morning and you truly do not have a plan for fighting this war in your own soul, then I would encourage you to go home and use these questions that I'm about to give you as a guide to get a strategic battle plan in place. Maybe it needs to be in your own life, or maybe it needs to be within your family. How can you, dads, how can you husbands, how can you wage war for your families? How can you protect them? How can you shepherd them? Here are some questions we need to ask. Number one is this, where is the battle fought? Where is the battle fought? 
The primary battleground in all of this is right here in our mind. We make choices with our minds, don't we? And really it is very simple. It comes down to a, it, it comes down to a battle between truth and lies. Faith versus unbelief. Are we going to embrace what is true and then obey God, or are we going to allow society to put things into our mind that we embrace those lies and then disobey God through those lies? What, what are you putting into your mind this morning? What are you putting? Is your mind being renewed as Romans chapter 12 says? Romans 12 says, really, there's a choice we all make. He, Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Are we, are we leaving our minds open to be conformed to this world? If so, the world will gladly take advantage of that. It'd be like taking a $100,000 sports car to the most violent city in America, Memphis or Miami or Detroit or somewhere, and leaving it parked outside in the worst neighborhood with a big tag on it that says, keys are in the ignition. What's gonna happen? Two minutes and it's gonna be gone. Why? Because you left it open to be taken. And many times our minds are unguarded. They're opened up to the world, and the world will gladly victimize us. The world will gladly conform us to who they are. And so there's a decision. What we take into our minds, are we taking in truth? Is the word of Christ richly dwelling within us, as Colossians 3 says? If not, step number one is this. Develop a plan to regularly take in God's word. Develop a plan to regularly take in truth. Number two, we need to ask this question. What are my weaknesses and where am I susceptible? What are my weaknesses and where am I susceptible? We must know what we struggle with and we must know where the enemy lies in ambush. We must know where we should not go. I mean, it, just the classic example, if someone struggles with alcoholism, where do they not need to go hang out at? A bar, right? I mean, just simple steps like that. If you struggle with you know, materialism or whatever, maybe you don't need to Go hang out at the mall every day or whatever. Get on Amazon.com all the time. Or maybe if you struggle with pornography, maybe you need to block the browser on your phone and shut down the app store on your phone. Put, put things in place, covenant eyes or circle or something to where you literally can't access it. So, you know, we need to know whatever areas we struggle in. we got to understand Satan is lying there in ambush and wants to destroy us in those areas. This is war. Now, now here's what I know what we do at this point. I'm guilty of this, and I think all of us struggle with this. But at this point is where we begin to rationalize why we can't take these steps in our lives. Well, you know, I can't, that's crazy. I can't block the browser on my phone. I need it for work, or I need it for this or that. Okay, fine. Then risk losing your family for a few images on your phone. You see how we rationalize that? The reality is this this matters, this is war. And sometimes it requires radical steps. It requires sacrifice. It requires bold actions of faith. So step number two is this. What do I need to avoid? What do I need to, what do I need to just take out of my life? Take that temptation out of my life. Number three, what weapons are available to me? Question number three to getting this plan together, what weapons are available to me? We need to employ the right spiritual weapons in this war that we are engaged in. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Paul writes there, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Here's the reality. We either take our thoughts captive to obey Christ, or our thoughts will take us captive every day, every day. 
And so we've got to be cunning in this. We've got to know what tools are at our disposal. Listen, if you know Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within you. Our helper, our paraclete, the one who comes alongside us to help us, to encourage us, to teach us. We have the Word of God. And by the way, I hope you're, I hope you're thankful for God's Word. Because there are, people in, there are people groups in this world today who do not have God's Word in their language. And they would love to even have a chapter of the Bible in their language they could read. We have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the Word of God. We have the ability to go to God in prayer. We can fast and call out on the name of Christ in certain things, in certain areas of our life, and God will work. And we have so many tools at our disposal. So step number three, learn what weapons I lack in this battle and determine how I can access them. Number four is this. Who should be in this battle with me? Who should be in this battle with me? There are, the, the last thing we need to be is Lone Ranger Christians, right? I mean, we don't try, need to try and live this life alone. What brothers and sisters do I need around me in this battle? We need wise counselors around us to instruct us, to help us. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no guidance, a people fall, but in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. We have to have, we have to have other Christians around us to help us. And this is the beauty of the church. This is the beauty of the church. Sometimes we need a person to encourage us in this battle when we are deeply discouraged. Sometimes we need someone to talk to when our passions are raging and we need accountability. Sometimes in life, we are about to walk off a cliff in life and we are blinded to that and we don't need someone to come pat us on the back and say, man, you're doing great. We need someone to tackle us and tell us to stop. We need people in our lives who can speak into our lives. I, I've heard people say before, you know, I don't really, I don't do the church thing. I just worship God on the lake or out in the woods. And can you worship God in the lake or in the woods? Absolutely. I mean, the heavens declare the glory of God. We can worship God in his creation. But I'm telling you, you can't get out in the woods and on the lake what you get right here among brothers and sisters. We need one another. We need one another. So who all do you know that is a strong believer in Christ who could be this for you? Go find them and ask them for help. Ask them for accountability. Sin grows best in the greenhouse of isolation. If you want to isolate yourself, then understand this. Sin is probably going to begin to flourish in your life. If you want to do life on your own, then understand this. Satan is the roaring lion. Just like the lion goes after the separated wildebeest from the, from the herd, he will come after you if you're separated and don't have other people around you to help you in this, in this journey we're going on together. So don't isolate yourself. Step number four, who do I need on my team? Number five is this. What should, be, what should my primary focus be fixed on? What should my primary focus be fixed on? And this is the biggest key here is this. Stay near the one who has all power and who will give us his power in life. Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, they will not be fixed on the world and on our passions. So question number five, do I have a clear plan of discipleship in my life? If not, I'm glad you're here today. I, I know that this church has a great process in place to help you grow in your, in your relationship with Christ. And so no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter, no matter how, how spiritually immature or mature you might be, I know that this church can help you grow in your faith. Talk to one of the pastors today and they will help you in this. I, I assure you they will. So take these truths, take these questions, and craft a plan of attack. So much is at stake. Christian, you are a sojourner. You are an exile. And you have the awesome privilege and the awesome responsibility of representing Christ to Rapid City and to this world. And there is urgency in this. 
I want to encourage you, South Canyon, to be light in this community. Never forget your mission. Your mission does not exist within these four walls. Your mission is out there. We love one another. We come together. We encourage one another. We find accountability, and then we go out with the gospel. The on, listen, the, this is not popular to say, the only message that can save a person, the message of Christ, the only true message of life. Really quickly, as you're about to move into a new season of ministry here, new pastor on the way, let me share an illustration with you in closing. Near the southeast Missouri town of Jackson sits Old Bethel Church. It is the oldest Protestant church west of the Mississippi River. It formed officially in 1806. A couple years prior to that, they could not legally exist as a church because that territory at that time was owned by the French and the Spanish, and it was illegal for non-Catholic churches to assemble. So Protestants in that area would meet in barns. They would meet in their homes, and, and they did this in order to avoid persecution and even prosecution. There was a great cost to being a Protestant in that area at that time. And so there were actually some preachers that would swim across the Mississippi River from Illinois in the middle of the night, freezing cold, under the cover of darkness, just to preach the message of Christ to those brothers and sisters who were meeting in homes and barns. But in 1804, everything changed. The Louisiana Purchase occurred, and that territory was bought by the United States, and it was no longer illegal for Protestant churches to assemble. So a little bit after that, in 1806, Old Bethel Church became officially recognized as a body of faith, the oldest Protestant church west of the Mississippi. And it grew and it grew and it grew. In fact, in its, fir in its first eight years, they planted nine other churches. And even though they were sending people out to plant churches, that church grew 10 times its original size. I mean, it was a revival in that little town. People in the community were coming to trust Christ. The church was thriving and reaching farmers and others in that community. The original boards from that first church building built in 1806 are still there, and they have, <coughs> they've been reconstructed to what that first building would have looked like. Now, that church started in 1806. It was alive for 61 years, and then it died. Do you know why it died? It was not because of persecution. I mean, in fact, persecution caused it to grow. It wasn't because of persecution. It wasn't because of hardship, like having pastors swim across the Mississippi to preach. It wasn't because of the harsh living conditions and long hours of work. It was not even because of conflict among the members. None of that killed it. Here is why it died. This was written after it closed to concisely tell the story of why Old Bethel Church died. And these words are inscribed on a plaque that is hanging on the old reconstructed building today. Listen to what it says. Old Bethel flourished as long as she was reaching out, but fell into decline as the membership took an anti-missionary stand. The last minutes of the church were recorded in 1867, and then it closed its door for the final time. Fast forward about 100 years 1963 at the University Church in New York, the University Christian Church in New York. Similar story. They closed their doors for the final time and they put a sign on their door that read this way. Going out of business because we did not know what our business was. I pray that this church will continue to be salt and light 
in Rapid City and beyond. You guys should be excited for this new season. I hope you are. I really do. You should be ready to work hard for Christ. Pray for your pastors. Pray for Pastor Joel. Pray for Pastor Tanner. And and, and pray for Pastor James as he and his family are on their way. And pray that this church will always have an outward focus, a generous focus, recognizing the urgency of ministering the gospel in this community and abroad. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we thank you so much for your word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. God, I do pray for this body of faith this morning, God, that great things are to come. Great days are ahead. And I pray that that South Canyon will be a gospel-centered, continue to be a gospel-centered church that goes out with the only message that can save. Father, as communion is about to be taken here in a moment, Lord, I pray that we would recognize with great humility the great sacrifice of Christ, understanding that no other blood would do, no other sacrifice was sufficient, only the blood of Christ. So God, I pray that we would worship you now in Jesus' name. Amen.